Everybody say amen. All right, I'm going to ask you, if you would please, to stand with me today. We have a text that's coming up. The title of the message this morning is called Paradigm Shift Required. That's kind of a, a, a mouthful. When I say a paradigm, I'm not talking about the same thing as four nickels. I'm not talking about a paradigms. <laughs> we're going to tell you what a paradigm is in just a moment, but we're looking for this paradigm to shift, and it's required. Now, before I have you read two verses of Scripture, let me summarize what is taking place in this passage in the book of 2 Kings. You remember the prophet Elijah. Everybody say Elijah. Well, he had a son, a prophetic son that wasn't his biological son, but a young man that he raised and trained. His name was Elisha, okay? And the way you can remember that is J comes before S. Everybody say Elijah. Elisha. So this is about Elisha. He was a powerful prophet that influenced the kings of the whole region. And basically, one king is very ticked off at him. If I were to ask you, poll the crowd and ask you, what was the primary enemy to the nation of Israel? The most answers would probably be the Philistines. You've heard that your whole life. Goliath was a Philistine. There were other enemies in the surrounding nations, the nation of Aram, and the Arameans or the Arameans, were under, obviously, the king of Aram. And the king of Aram was trying to defeat Israel. And he would send his troops into a particular place. And the Spirit of God would speak to Elisha. And Elisha would go and warn the king and say, don't send the army to such and such a place because the king of Aram has sent his army. And it happened so many times that the king of Aram gathered his generals and all of his leaders together and said, okay, which one of you is the traitor? Every time we muster our troops together to whip Israel, it's like they're not even in the region that we knew that they were in. And one officer spoke up and said, oh, great king, it's none of us. It's that prophet Elisha. Anything you say in the privacy of your own bedroom, God tells him and he goes and tells the king of Israel. How many of you know somebody's listening? And so, well, tell me, he says, the king of Aram says, well, tell me where this prophet Elisha is, and we're going to go kill him. And so I've heard the general said that he's at Dothan. And so the king of Aram gathers all of his army, and he sends them to Dothan. And it says in verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere, and Gehazi who was the servant of Elisha, says, Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried out to Elisha. So here we go. We just set up the context so you can know what's happening. Read it with me. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Now stop. Now that sounds totally outrageous and ridiculous to Gehazi because he can't see what Elisha can see. How many of you know what you see is important? That's what we're going to be driving home this morning. For there are more on our side than on theirs. One more verse. Then Elisha prayed. Read it with me. O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Let's bow our hearts together for a word of prayer. Gracious God, we come before you this morning and we ask you that you would do a work of opening today. Open our hearts to receive the word from your throne.
get in the middle of my thoughts and my words I acknowledge before you and before this people that I desperately need you. Matter of fact, Lord, I'll say that I need you right now in this moment more than I've ever needed you in my whole life. Strengthen me, O oh God. Give me the words to speak. Custom design. Tailor make a message, Lord, that will individually and intricately touch the heart of every individual person sitting in this room and those that listen on the internet in the future. God, thank you that only, only the Holy Spirit of God has the capacity and the ability to do that. I acknowledge, Lord, that I need you, and I ask you, Lord, to open our eyes, even as Elisha prayed for Gehazi's eyes to open, and he saw. Do that today, O Lord, and we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Now, before you're seated, we've got one thing that we want to go up on the screen. Read it with me. What we see determines how we act. Say it like you mean it. What we see determines just this side over here. Let me hear you. What this side. Come on. Everybody help the middle. Here we go. What we see determines how we act. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. Let me just review for about a minute. I got calls. I was texted. I ran into folk at the grocery store. Somebody Instagram messaged me. Folk told me everywhere I saw it go up on Aaron's and a couple of other people. Uh, Aaron said one day, I believe on Monday, said, how many of you felt obligated to make your bed and win the, win the day in the first hour? <laughs> if you weren't here last Sunday, I, I referred to the book written by retired Navy General William H. McRaven called Make Your Bed. And it was just one of about 10 principles that he learned as a Navy SEAL. Now, let me just say this. The message wasn't literally about go make your bed. That's the habit that I began that had a ripple effect into my life that helped me to begin to cope with the grief and the loss and the overwhelming sense that I got when I looked at our house after dawn passed. The closets and every drawer, the garage, the attic, just from her being in depression and me battling it because of living in the house with that for three years. And it was just the simple habit of making the bed and seeing the order and it looking, stepping back and looking at it and thanking God, starting the day before I left the house with a win under my belt. And the whole message was about the law of little things. It's about that if we will be faithful in few, then God will put us over much if we'll take care of the small amount that he puts into our hands, then he will multiply that and make us to be stewards over great, vast amounts, whether that's money or finance or people or whatever. It is a kingdom principle. Now, when I use the word law, I'm not thinking like the law as the Ten Commandments that are a moral issue that we break when we don't obey them. I'm talking about a law like a principle. The principle, the law of gravity is a principle. It, it can't be broken. It, it, it works every time. If I step off of this platform and, and don't jump into it, then I can just fall over and land because gravity is going to pull me down at the rate of 32 feet per second or whatever, which is a whole lot when I roll off the platform. <laughs> the third thing that I want to review is that our one thing from last week, what we repeatedly do determines our destiny. 
So we're building. We're building some awareness of some principles, some laws that are kingdom principles found in the Bible. And this is, this is what I want you to understand. When you sow a Bible principle, you will always reap a Bible result. When you sow a seed of a Bible principle, you will always reap the consequence of that action is going to be a Bible result. It's not, is God happy with me today so he's going to make this work? No, it works all the time. It works every time. That's why it's a principle. So we talked about the law of little things. Today we're going to move on. And as we open this up, I want you to see where we began last time we were here we actually kicked in, and I've got a little point over here on this side. We kicked in, when I, when I talked about making your bed, I was talking about establishing a habit or a little thing, a small thing. That's just an action. The more you do it, then it becomes a habit. But I want to back up in this linear progression today because the thoughts I think determine the actions I do. Those establish the habits that I make, the habits inform my character. My character determines my destiny. All of this backs all the way up back to the thoughts that I have. And so what I think is critical. Somebody say amen. amen. My thoughts determine my actions, which affect my habits, which in turn touch my character and my destiny. So first point this morning, we said the title of the message is paradigm shift required. What, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I want to unpack that. Break that down a little bit. I'm, I'm reading several books. One, I would say out of all of these, a number of them are great, but if there is one that you would like to get that I believe will really change your life, this one by Stephen Covey is a classic. When you open the cover here in this, this uh, uh, paperback, it says Michael Smith-91. That's the year I bought it. It was 1991. And read it, and I preached a message in our old church, this was when we were down in the shoebox at 620 West Broadway, there by, behind Master's Jewelry. And I preached a message called Seven Habits of Highly Effective Christians. And it really began to set a work in my life. We were just two years into our young church. I guess 91 was the third year. And so it began to kind of set me up for some practices that I think have helped me through the years, especially in regard to not quitting and to, to build a better relationship, to, have, to be a better husband to my wife, Dawn, to be a better dad to my children, Drew and Abby. And so he introduces this concept in that book about the need for a paradigm shift. And so what is a paradigm? A paradigm is like a pattern. Um, it, it could be compared to a map. We know that the map is not the territory that it depicts because it's just showing one aspect, whether it's topographical or it's geological or any number of things that a map can actually show, sometimes not just roads or lanes or, or, or means of travel. Uh, another way to describe a paradigm is a lens through which you look at the world. The most obvious one I have resting on my nose this morning, a paradigm is like a pair of glasses. I'm, I just recently had my 58th birthday, and since I was, I think, 42 is when I got my first pair of glasses, and I went to the Op optometrist at the time or ophthalmologist, whatever. And I said, hey, can I, can I do LASIK? And he looked at me and he said, no, you have presbyopia. I said, okay, you do and you'll clean it up. And I, we were just making a joke. And he said, no, you have presbyopia. And I said, I'm very well aware. Presby, when you think of the word Presbyterian, 
the, 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 the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. So we're talking about an aged one, a white-haired one. So presbyopia, opia is the aging of the eye. And so he said, there's nothing you can do. You're just going to have to wear glasses. And so the glasses that I put on make everything larger. Now, this is obvious, but think about it. It doesn't actually alter the size of the things that I'm reading. It just gives me a larger perspective. It enlarges it in my seeing, in my vision, so that I'm able with my presbyopia, my aging eyes that have a problem muscularly adjusting, which is just what happens with old age. So these actually enlarge things for me without changing the shape of those things, but they make them bigger in my sight so that I can read easier. So I want to demonstrate this to you this morning. There is a card in the pocket in the seat in front of you. There's a card in the pocket in the seat in front of you. If you would reach into that pocket, and I want you to take the card out, and I want you to look at the picture on the card. If you've seen this before, please don't, don't say anything. No comments, please. But I want you to take the next five seconds and look at that card. Get that image in your head. All right, did, did those, those of you that are on the front row, was there an extra card back there? The person behind you, if you would, maybe pass it up and share it with them just for a moment. Look at it. A couple seconds. All right, if you would, go ahead and put the image up on the screen for me. Okay. You see this image here? Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you, when you look at this image, I'd like a show of hands, how many of you see an old woman? About half of you, okay. When you look at this image, how many of you, how many of you see a young woman? Okay, that's the other half of the room. All right, um, wait, wait a minute, I, I just have to ask this question. Everyone in the room is looking at the exact same image, right? How is this possible for us to all be viewing the same image and we see two different things? Pastor, are you saying that two people can look at the same sense of reality and come away in disagreement and actually both be right? That's not logical. No, it's not logical. It's psychological. Stay with me. Okay, so I want you to see is why there were two different responses. We're looking at it in black and white. Yes, facts are facts, but what happened was, now remember our one thing, what we see determines how we act. Say it with me. What we see determines how we act. Uh, first of all, if you see a young lady, you, it elicits a certain response. There's an emotional response to that. Maybe you'd like to hang out with her and be a friend if you're a young lady. If you're a young man, maybe you'd like to ask her out on a date, take her to dinner. Now, if you look at this same image and you see an old lady, you might maybe feel sorry for her or pity her because the old woman in this picture looks sad and you might want to reach out and try to help her get across the street, okay? So that's a whole different set of feelings and emotions and thoughts that were determined by what you saw in this picture, okay? So what we are seeing demonstrated right here is called the law of perspective. Say that with me. The law of perspective. Now, what happened was, and let me just tell you, if you would go ahead and put up the, the picture of the young lady, 
which I believe was everybody on this side of the room had that, correct? Is that the one you guys had? And every other row in the middle got the picture of the young lady, okay? Now, if you would switch it out with the picture of the old woman, same image, but you see the emphasis here is on some different lines. Everybody in this side got the picture of the old woman and every other row in the middle section. So when you looked at these pictures before you saw the full image, if you would go ahead and put the, the full image back up for me, please, then what you, had pre, what you had seen previously affected how you saw this picture. So when you look at this picture, I'm going to use this side this time. Now, if you're looking at this picture, first of all, this is the young woman. Here's her neckline. There's her nose and her eyelash. But if you saw the old woman, then this is like a great, big, huge scarf over her head. And here is her nose. Here is her eye. The necklace around the young woman's neck is the old woman's mouth. Do you see that? Okay. And then this is the old woman's chin. That would be the dress line of the young woman, but it's the old woman's chin. Are you guys seeing? If you see, say Amen. Now, first of all, this is not new. This has been around for 30 years. Uh, this was actually a Harvard University experiment by social scientists that were attempting to see that when we precondition people to see something and then there's the opportunity to see something else in a combination picture like this, does having seen the initial image affect how they see the final one? The obvious answer is yes, absolutely. Somebody say amen. Okay, pastor, this is great. This, you know, might be in a business meeting. I don't, what does this have to do with church? All right, this, this has everything to do with how you live your life. This has everything to do with how you view your personal circumstances because I want you to recognize that our experiences affect our perspective. Say that with me. Our experiences affect our perspective. Our life experiences condition us to see the world a certain way. Our past affects how we see our present. Now, I've got to stop here for just a minute and speak to some issues because this is critical in the Delta. I, I want to say kindly to all of my white brothers and sisters, this is why when we look around, we don't see social and racial injustice because we've not lived the experiences of our African brothers and sisters. They experience things on a daily basis that you don't have happen to you. People don't look at you with a hairy eyeball when you get onto an elevator with a, a, a group of certain people. And so because of that, we don't see it. And, and since we don't see it, we need to be willing to back up and listen to our, our brothers who come from a different perspective. Now, hear this. This isn't just about the racial tension that exists in the Delta. This is about the national polarization between Democrats and Republicans, between liberals and conservatives. And let me just tell you right now, we have both in the room. And I think that is so amazingly healthy. I think it's great. That's, that's the reason that people from two different ideologies can both quote the Bible and take scriptures that seem to back up their worldview or their particular political ideology. 
When I saw this in the 90s, I, I began a process of growing past just putting all of my eggs in one political idea or one basket. And I've seen, I've seen America demonize people across the table because they didn't have the exact same views. And it breaks my heart. And I want to tell you right now, I'm not asking anybody in the room to put down your conservative or your liberal values because both of those ideas are found in Scripture. We, we want to be generous and liberal. At the same time, we want to be faithful stewards and be conservative where it's right to be conservative. And because of that, and because God gives us this whole spectrum, I believe that we need to be people of the third choice. We need to be people that are citizens of the kingdom of God and recognize that I'm a kingdom citizen before I'm a, a Democrat or a Republican. I'm even a kingdom citizen before I'm an American. And, and because of that, I, I, why do we let ourselves get in such a stinking tribal mentality that we think that our group is better than other people? God, forgive us and help us and to get rid of any kind of supremacy that we think that we're better than anybody else. We are all broken, jacked up, desperately in need of Jesus. How did we get here? How did we get to this point? We see the world not as it is, but we see it as we are. We see the world because of the conditioning that we had, the experiences that I have, the family that I grew up in, the values that I've been taught. I'm grateful for them. But none of us needs to think that it is the only way and it is the right way and everybody else is wrong. Because you can look at anything and see a couple of things differently from different perspectives. We need to be people that are generous. Generous not just by giving somebody something in need, but generous with our ideology that where we don't just immediately categorize somebody and go tribal on them. As a matter of fact, if you're a kingdom person, you realize that God said that he's choosing a people out of every kindred tribe and tongue. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. So what does this have to do with habits? Well, it has to do everything with how you see the practices that you do in your life and what you identify as problems, what you call good habits and what you call bad habits. We need to be renewed in our mind. Our thinking needs to change. Next point, the way we see the problem is the problem. The way you see the problem currently that has you in a place of defeat, Gehazi looked out over the valley and all he saw was an innumerable, innumerable group of horses and troops and soldiers and chariots. And it wasn't until his leader, until the prophet of God, Elisha, laid hands on him and said, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. Because remember the one thing, what you see determines how you what? How you act, what you see. And Gehazi couldn't see it. We need to be gracious to people who don't see what we're stepping into. People who don't get your vision because it's your vision. You saw it. They didn't. Don't worry about somebody not catching on and not blessing what you're going to do because God hasn't called them to do it anyway. He called you to do it. And if you'll get up out of the, the mode of thinking it matters what everybody else thinks, you'll be far better off anyway. Come on, somebody, I'm preaching right now. The way we see the problem is... The problem. 
The army and soldiers multiplied in the thousands. And once Gehazi's eyes were opened, the problem ceased to be because he'd gotten a glimpse of the heavenly hosts that were gathered around them. And it wasn't just a crazy statement by a, a strange prophet that said, let me just tell you right now, all of those that are for us far outnumber them that are against us. And Gehazi says, one, two, 10,000. I don't know what you're seeing. Well, that's just hang on. I'm going to pray for you. The Lord's going to open your eyes and you're going to be able to see. Come on, somebody in this room, you need to ask God to open your eyes so you can see from a new perspective. So you can see the problems you're battling, how to deal with your finances in this new year and to not get back into the same pattern that you've always landed in, how to break that bad habit that you're struggling with. God wants to give us a perspective so that we can look at things in a new kind of way. Stephen Covey shared this very idea himself in his book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Lived in New York City. He gets on the subway. He travels it every day extensively to get into his office, to go back home. He's gotten acquainted with a few of the people. If you've never been to New York, the subway is not the place to try to meet friends and influence people. <laughs> Folk are quiet. They don't look you in the eye. And it's not like it is down south where everybody you see, you just, hi, how are you? I learned that the first time I got on. <laughs> You're not from here, are you? No, no. <laughs> Stephen Covey got on the subway one afternoon. It's the end of his work day. He's going back home. And everything was just riding along as usual. It's nice and quiet. Nobody's talking. Nothing goofy going on on the train or the car that he was on until the doors opened at the next station. And... A very disheveled-looking father comes on the subway train with his three very raucous, rowdy children, and they're jumping all over the place, and they're creating a scene, and what was peaceful and calm in one second, as soon as the doors close, all of a sudden become this rowdy mayhem. And you can see that people are looking at each other at the corner of the eye. Is somebody going to say anything? Because it's ridiculous. And, and it went on for minutes, and finally... Stephen Covey himself spoke up, and he happens to be sitting right next to the man who is the father of these kids who had laid his head back against the window behind him. And, and he's just, you can see the guy's just, his brows furrowed. He's in a place of a worried state. He's dealing with things that nobody else in the car knows about because it just seems to be a private battle. And, and, but yet, why isn't he dealing with his kids? Because they're disrupting everything. And so Stephen speaks up, and he says, Sir, your children are, are, are very rowdy and they're disrupting everything don't you think you need to deal with them and the guy sort of roused and opened his eyes and he looks at Stephen next to him and he said oh sir you're you're absolutely right I'm so sorry my wife just died an hour ago and I'm still processing this and my kids don't know how to deal with it and Stephen had an aha moment his paradigm shifted because everything that he saw in that moment now is cast in a whole different light 
There's, there's compassion. There's not frustration any longer, but there's compassion coming up out of Stephen Covey. He says, oh, sir, I'm so sorry. Is there anything that I can do for you? And all of a sudden, everything changed because he had an aha moment and the paradigm shifted and he saw everything in a different light. His thoughts changed because his thoughts changed. What he felt changed. His emotions changed. And the way he began to behave changed because his behavior was determined by what he now saw in a fresh perspective. Remember what's our one thing? What we see determines how we what? How we act. And so once he saw the full picture, he began to emote compassion out of his heart instead of aggravation and frustration. And the whole point of that story is that to help us recognize is that we need to step back before we immediately get involved in a set of circumstances and shoot our mouths off and have to say, oh, I'm sorry. And let me just tell you, my size 14 foot has actually fit into my mouth so many times. I feel like the Apostle Peter, insert foot, 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 foot. The rest of this message will be in tongues. I just trust that you have the gift of interpretation. The whole point is, is that we sometimes need to back up before we speak and get all the facts and discern what's happening in an individual's life. Listen to this quote by Albert Einstein. He says, the significant problems we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. Look at your neighbor and say, think differently. The significant problems we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. There's a story that appears in this book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. He's a very famous reporter who's gone behind the lines in wars, in the boardrooms, interviewed a lot of very famous people. And he tells the story after years of very significant research, literally on the collegiate level in, in science, in neurology, in behavioral psychology, sociologists, this whole study of how we develop habits. This one, if you really want to dig into it, is you're going to take a little bit of work to get through it because it's, you're going to have to wade through some scientific stuff. But there's a remarkable story that begins in the prologue by a young lady by the name of Lisa Allen. She was sitting before a group of behavioral psychologists, neurologists, scientists, all of these different folks. Her story began in her teens when she started drinking and smoking cigarettes. And she came to them because she had had a radical transformation in her life. Just a few years prior, she was morbidly obese. She was an alcoholic. She smoked. She had lost her job. Collectors were calling her for multiplied thousands of dollars in debt. And yet before them was sitting this gorgeous, lean young woman that looked like she could exercise any of those scientists in the room. She spoke well. She had no debt. She would bought a new home, started a master's degree program, and was now in the 39th month of a graphic design firm job. And so they wanted to know what happened. How did you make the transformation from where you were in the mess that you were in, the shape that your life was in, to where you are now? And one of the scientists said, let me just set this up. 
Lisa, would you tell us how you stopped smoking cigarettes? She said, well, it was a very rash decision. Basically, my husband came home. She was in her 20s at the time. My husband came home one day at the end of work, and he looked at me, and he said, I don't love you anymore, and I'm leaving you for another woman. After she got up off the floor from weeks of the, the, the burn of, of betrayal and actually grieving the loss of a relationship and looking at the situation that she was in, morbidly obese, alcohol, cigarettes, debt, all this kind of stuff, she just said, well, I don't have a job. My credit cards are not quite maxed out, and I've always wanted to see the pyramids in Egypt. So she books a trip to Egypt. She charges it on her credit card, and she goes over there. She, she lands, gets a hotel room. The next morning, she wakes up to the sound of the 5 a.m. prayers of the Muslims that are praying in the early morning. And she couldn't sleep, and so there are no lights on, and she reaches for a cigarette, and she's fumbling in the dark only to smell burning plastic because she realizes she's trying to light the end of a pen instead of a cigarette. And she breaks down and cries, and she goes through thinking about her husband that had left her and all of the mess, the, the, this, the jacked-up life that she was living and over here in the middle of a foreign country, and, and she, she breaks down and sobs, and, and she gets up to walk across the room, and she knocks a water jar over, and it shatters. The glass breaks all over the place, and it just sends her into a, just a kind of a bottomless pit of emotion, and she's, she's tearful. She manages to shower and get out there into the tour bus and, and drive and make the ride out there to where she sees the Sphinx and the, the pyramids at Giza. And, and for just a moment, all of the weight of all the stuff that she has on her back seems to lift off just for a little bit. And she gets a glimpse of a vision. She actually has the idea. She, she realizes that her life is so messed up and there's nothing absolutely, she can't even do anything right. She can't even smoke a cigarette the right way. She's trying to burn pl a plastic pen. And so she says, I have to do one thing. Everybody say one thing. One thing that I can control. And she said, I need a goal that is bigger than all the problems that I have. And she says, I'm going to come back here to Egypt next year, and I'm going to go on a trek across that desert. Not knowing how much it would cost. She's morbidly obese, doesn't have the, the athletic ability to be able to do what she's thinking about doing. But yet she gets up and makes a decision, and something radically changes in the bottom of her heart in that moment of time. She goes back home. And the rest of it is the story that happens after that. She goes back to Egypt in a year. When she got home, she realized if she was going to make a trek across the desert she didn't even know the name of, she said, I'm going to have to quit smoking these cigarettes if I'm going to accomplish this goal. She had something bigger that outweighed the desire for the cigarette and the relief it would give her. And so she quickly laid it down because she wanted something bigger than her to be fulfilled in her life. The cigarettes that she quit became jogging. Jogging affected how she ate, how she scheduled her day, how she conducted her work and her job, and how she spent her money. Now, four years later, she has no debt. She's 39 months into a new job. She's got money in the bank, and she's radically transformed because of one little habit that she changed. Remember last week? Everybody said, make your bed. Whatever it is that will trigger you, and it's not the same for everybody in this room. 
One little thing. Quit worrying about the 10 bad things you need to change and just start one good thing in your life. Come on. In 2019, start one good thing. And they said, we need to tell you this because she was invited into this study where they actually... Uh, sort of synthesize the DNA and they put cameras in their homes and they do everything they can to watch people to see how they've built these new habits. And they said, you know what, we've, t we've taken brain scans and we can actually see the old neurological patterns of your old habits. But I can show you your brain, Lisa, and you have overridden a whole, you have all new habits that have overpowered those old ones. And this is the track right here in your brain where that happens. And so the beauty of it is, is that no matter what you're struggling with this morning, God has hardwired you with the ability that if you will look up to him, open my eyes, Lord, so I can see. And then when you begin to see, if we will put our trust in him, it is amazing what God is able to accomplish in our lives. What is our one thing? As I finish the message this morning, say it with me. What we see determines how we act. Last point, quickly. And it depends on, I'm watching my time, so we may not get all of them. We need to shift. We need to put on a new set of glasses, get a different lens, read a different map. We need to shift in our thinking. We need to get all the light on what we're dealing with, what we're wrestling with. Shift from to. This is what I want you to see first. I want you to shift from outside in, where you're trying to force yourself to do something you don't want to do, to inside out where you begin to think about a change of identity, where you start to see yourself in a new light. I want you to shift from, go ahead and put the next one up. I want you to shift from conforming to what somebody else says you need to be to letting the Holy Spirit transform you on the inside. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. We have to shift from changing outside behavior to altering our inside identity. If you're trying to break the habit of smoking cigarettes and you've been without for a few days and someone comes along beside you and they're smoking and they offer you one, most of the time, if you're just simply trying to alter your behavior, you will say, no thanks, I'm trying to quit smoking. But someone who has done the interior work and recognizes they're going to live out of a new identity will just respond and say, no thank you, I'm not a smoker. Do you hear the difference in that? Because they see themselves entirely different. Because what you see, help me, help me say it, come on, determines how we want, how we act. Next, oh Lord, help us, help us from all of our late night infomercials where we can get rich quick. Man, I can put you in real estate in 90 days, you're going to have 400,000 properties that are worth 10 trillion gazillion dollars. You'll just buy my set for $199. And I want to go, well, if, you're, if it's so amazing, why aren't you out there doing that instead of selling $190 sets? Short term, let me confess my sin. I know how to lose weight. I maintained it for about eight years. But then emotional circumstances drew me back down into where I became dependent on the fix I could get. Mm, hallelujah. Oh, oh! I remember taking a picture at the Cheesecake Factory and I, I put it on Instagram and I said, this must be what heaven is like. <laughs> now, if you don't appreciate cheesecake, then I'll pray for you and let your eyes be opened, okay? 
Whatever it is, everybody in the room has got a flavor. It may not be food. I, it's obvious mine is. And I've, I have short-term whipped it into shape several times in my life. But, but so much of the time I grind down and it takes outrageous energy. And I get in the gym and I change my eating habits and I drink a lot of water. And I quit drinking my, my holy diet Dr. Pepper, which is the elixir of the prophets of God. <laughs> I have an addiction. As a matter of fact, that's what's in that cup sitting right over there, diet Dr. Pepper. I die, yes, I love it. I, I love the taste of it. I love the feeling it makes me feel. What are y'all laughing at? But I've got to get out of short term, and I have to go long term in my life. Anybody you hear what I'm talking about? Come on. I, I, I have to shift from a quick fix to a process where it becomes a lifestyle. Now, I have a commitment. December 1st. I'm going to weigh 215 pounds this year, and I'm just putting it out in front of all of y'all. And, and that right now is about 95 pounds away. I've dropped eight since 10 days ago. Look, when you're this heavy, that, that first eight's probably just water. I know it, okay? I look at your neighbor and say, man, he ain't afraid to be real. All right, I'm going to make you uncomfortable now. Everybody, look, you've got to move from being a consumer to a producer. You're just sitting in here soaking up all the glory and coming to church because you think I'm a believer. The church is for me. Wrong. You are the church and we are for the delta. We are sent. Get out of your consumer mentality and be a producer. Get on team with us. I'm going to ask you, are you a consumer producer? Come on. We have to shift from me to what? To we. Are you getting anything out of this? As I bring the message to a close this morning, God help us in the Southern Bible Belt churchianity that we have. We've got to shift from religion, all of the rules and regulations, the do's and don'ts, and we've got to shift into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got we to move away from doing where you feel like you have to work your way into God's favor or to get to heaven, and you have to shift over to being I'm a new creation in Christ. That's my identity. I know who I am now. So the things of the world no longer have a pull on me because I'm, I'm firmly convinced of who I am. I'm not going to live like who I used to be because I've had a shift. Because, see, I want you to see this morning that the new birth is a paradigm shift. It, it's, a, it's a change. It's a, it's a change from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's from the old to the new. Everybody say old to new. It's a change in the government. I move away from governing myself and just living how I want to to saying Jesus is Lord of my life. It's a change in my thinking because every one of those things require that I have to think differently. I have to let this mind be in me which was also in Christ Jesus. I have to have a paradigm shift. I don't know what you're struggling with this morning. This is a whole different way I've ever tried to start the year. And I'm so excited about this series. Because one thing, one little thing, one right little habit can have a ripple effect that will radically affect the rest of your life. But you must begin and let the Lord change how you think. Because how you think affects how you act. How you act builds your habits. 
The habits you consistently do affects your character. The character you live out over time is going to determine your destiny. And it all starts this morning with what we see determines how we act. Say it with me one more time. Determines how we act. This morning, I see Jesus. I see Jesus who loves me no matter what I'm struggling with right now in this second on January the 20th, Sunday morning. He loves me so much that he literally came and gave his life. He became a substitute. He was godly suffering for the ungodly. He was righteous suffering for the unrighteous. He was just suffering for me, the unjust. And he laid down his life for me, not just so I could go to heaven when I die, but he showed me how I could live if I would learn how to follow him and and, and sort of hitch up to his cart and let him teach me these principles of the kingdom of God. Last week it was about the law of little things. Today it's the law of perspective. See, the Pharisees were all looking at things from the outside and Jesus said, guys, you, you you have it totally wrong. You don't even see the reality of a person's heart. You're looking on the outside and God looks on the inside. Everybody say a different perspective. You know what? I don't know what's in your heart this morning, but I'm going to tell you, you have an opportunity to give it to the Lord and for him to open the eyes of your heart so that you can see. So your testimony can be amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now... I see. We don't work for it. We got to shift from doing to being. You just put your trust in Him. Reach out and take hold of the gift of eternal life. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He took my place, He took yours. Receiving Him is a paradigm shift, it'll cause you to begin to see your life in a whole different perspective. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer.